Welcome to Near and Far, the World Catholicism Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Buddy, Senior Research Scholar in the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology in Chicago. Healing and care for the sick are practices that go back to the very origins of the Christian movement, to the lives of Jesus and the Apostles. Joining me today is Dr. David Gauss, founder and director of Andean Health and Development, a nonprofit organization pioneering new approaches in healthcare in Latin America. David, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Michael, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You're in town as um, speaking as part of DePaul's Works of Mercy series, in this case dealing with the practice of comforting the sick. There are lots of stories about Christians providing health care in poor and marginalized communities. What makes Andean health and development different? Well, let me start off by saying I'm not sure how different we really are, but I would say that over the 20 years that I've been in Ecuador, uh, the, the perspective and the perception of, of Christians providing health care in Ecuador um, is what it is, and my reflections are more based on, on that experience and that contextualization more than anything else. And I, I think that I would say that the, uh, the, what makes us unique is, is the development rigor that we put around our healthcare service delivery. Uh, historically, in a place like Ecuador, uh, uh, missionary organizations, organizations doing uh, healthcare delivery in the name of, 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 of religious organizations, uh, oftentimes we feel fall short on a number of, in a number of areas, and those are the areas that we really seem to that we really want to focus on, and so. The old Albert Schweitzer model of missionary medicine, for example, is something that we respect and understand its moment when it was useful, but we feel that the world has moved on since then. Can you talk about some of the shortcomings in some of these earlier approaches, um, the ideas of people from the outside just parachuting into a community and providing services without necessarily becoming incorporated in a, a, a a part of the of the community itself and ongoing relationships and so on. Well, what you said is right on. That, that that's exactly how it's characterized by uh, people in a place like Ecuador. It's it's essentially people coming from either the United States or Western Europe uh, to a new area um, with resources, with personnel, with money, uh, build a building, dole out healthcare healthcare services in a relative vacuum maybe not much interacting with people at the local level, transposing or translating models of medicine and transposing them onto cultures without much contextualization. Um, no, no mind towards self-sustainability um, with a significant amount of evangelization. I, uh, and again, I don't have an issue with that part of it, but I can just tell you for me personally, one of my um, favorite, uh, quotations I saw was in a nun's office, a Franciscan nun many years ago, and it said, uh, it was a line from St. Francis that said, go out and preach the gospel and use words only if necessary. <laughs> I always thought that was an interesting one. Now, the story of this group seems intertwined with your own life story. Um, you were on your way to a pro professional career in business. You had an accounting degree and, you know, were on your way to you know, a respectable life in the, in the world of commerce. Um, how does one go from that to becoming an innovator in tropical medicine and health capacity building in a place very far from home? 
Well, I think, first of all, you have to wonder. You have to get off the merry-go-round and wonder if what you really chose is what you really want to do. And uh, I did that. And that was, on the one hand, a very uh, important part of my life, but I will tell you that I, was a, I felt as though I was a fairly profoundly disturbed individual my <laughs> senior year of college. Um, and I had so much so that I had considered everything from becoming a priest to becoming a pilot in the Navy. Uh, so I was all over the map. Uh, but I think what ultimately happened is that at the place where I was at school, there was a lot of emphasis on, on, on social concerns and on moving outside your comfort zone. And I did a fairly decent job of neglecting that, that message for a long time. I did a lot of those kinds of things in the Jesuit high school that I had attended in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But uh, in college, I was suddenly wired to be an accountant. But by the time I, I came up on the end of my, my four years or after my third year, I began uh, talking to guys who were women who were graduate, had graduated and were working in accounting and telling me what they were doing. And I was thinking to myself, this is not what I want to do. And so that just opened the door for me. It was a, it was a great time. It was, it was nice to get my midlife crisis out of the way at a nice young age. <laughs> Overachieving even in that respect, apparently. <laughs> That's right. So you, went to, you did your undergraduate study at the University of Notre, Notre Dame, correct? And you had some inf influential people there at the university that helped guide you through this discernment process at a fairly, fairly young age. Can you talk a little bit about that? So the, uh, just a number of classmates, um, friends of mine that were doing uh, uh, volunteer work that after, after undergrad they decided to do volunteer work either through JVC or Holy Cross Associates or Peace Corps or something along those lines. And I, it's something I, in myself, some, uh, something rekindled uh, in terms of the role of the church in Latin America. And remember, Michael, this was at a time within the last decade we had um, the assassination of Archbishop Romero in Nicaragua. We had the Sandinista Revolution. We had the Pinochet um, Revolution in Chile. We had the Dirty War in Argentina. Um, and there was just an awful lot going on. We had an inspiring pope who I actually saw here uh, in Chicago, stayed at DePaul University with uh, a friend from high school, a high school friend from earlier years. So it was a very rich time in, in Latin American history and in Latin American political and church history. And that suddenly became of great interest to me. And so it made the decision a little bit easier. And uh, at that time, our president, uh, Father Ted Hesburgh, um, was, uh, was very helpful. I actually paid him a visit and thought that I could get down to Ecuador, um, which was the program I decided to go to through the Peace Corps. Through the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps director was our commencement speaker that year. Did work out, long story short, but it developed a, a, a relationship, a friendship with Father Hesburgh, uh, which carried on for, for many years after that. It's quite a, quite a trans, transition to make. When you, when you decided to make the move first to Ecuador on a short-term basis and then finding a vocation of sorts um, that you hadn't anticipated perhaps as a younger person, um, what kind of things did you have to unlearn? I mean, kind of the expectations you might have had, you know, sort of in how one looks at the world. How did, how did the way you look at the world start to, start to change? Well, it, you know, that's 
That was an ongoing process. The way I looked at the world changed drastically over the next five to 10 years. Uh, that initial way I looked at the world, as a 22-year-old, as a I was still fairly self-absorbed like most 22-year-olds are. But one of the things I discovered while I was in Ecuador volunteering at this place called the Working Boys Center, it was run by a, a Jesuit from the, from the New York province with uh, some nuns from, uh, from uh, the Blessed, Virgin, the Blessed uh, Virgin Mary Order, um, was that uh, I would work really long hours, uh, really exhausted, but I felt like I was doing something worthwhile. And, and, and I felt like I had my finger on the pulse of humanity in a way that I had never had before in my life. But in spite of being exhausted, I would come home at night feeling uh, just re really good, just really good. And I thought to myself, what can possibly touch this in the States? And I met a person doing tropical disease research. I got excited about medicine. I decided to give that a try, but always with the idea of going back to Ecuador to work. And I think what I discovered, Michael, in this process is that I was a person of passion. I really wanted to find something that I could be passionate about. And I think that if you can find something in the community to which you can connect that passion, one might call that a vocation. And I, I, I like, and I think that's different than a career because I think a career is more of a retrospective diagnosis. You look at when you're 65 and you retire, you say, this is what I did or this, what I, this is what I didn't do. When you've got a vocation, I feel like you can proactively drive it because you, you take it where you want it to go because it's part of your, it's part of your passion. And so, I was fortunate enough to, early, to discover that early on. I don't know if I would describe at that time what I'm describing to you now because it was still pretty embryonic, half-baked in my mind, but those were, those were some important life lessons I had learned. And then I realized, looking around me, wow, there are a lot of people that don't have any passion in their lives at all. So I felt pretty lucky. And it made the challenge of going back to do undergrad or post-baccalaureate, post pre-med, and all those other things the next 11 years, it made it easy because the passion was there. 11 years to retool and retrain yourself, in effect, um, getting the prerequisites for medical school, getting a medical degree, as well as a master's in public health. Um, and that's, that's quite a bit of deferred gratification for someone who doesn't have passion for what their, for what their, ultimate, their ultimate goals are. That's right, that's right. But you could, if you could see, you could, I could visualize how, how I could use those things as I was learning them and how I could apply them to the places I wanted to go ultimately. So again, that made it a lot easier. When you go back to Ecuador, having completed your training, having maintained relationships there and interested in making new ones, how did you decide to settle on that sector of medicine that some called, sometimes called the secondary level of care, which is, explain to me what that, yeah. what, what that, what that means. So it's, it's an inappropriate uh, nomenclature, to be honest with you. When we talk about first level, second level, and third level, uh, that can be mixed up with primary health care, which is a whole nother discussion. But basically, first level medical services include outpatient, health education, health prevention, health promotion, um, those kinds of things, vaccine delivery. Second level is really best characterized by the rural hospital. So a place that's one notch up from the outpatient facility 
that has a place where you can deliver babies, where you can be hospitalized if you have a basic problem that is not manageable in the outpatient setting, excuse me, an emergency department, um, labs, some imaging, and then pharmacy access. Those are, that's a secondary care hospital. Most Americans, I would venture to guess, don't know those places because most of us live in urban settings. And so most larger urban settings are usually tertiary care hospitals. And the difference between secondary and tertiary, or second level and third level, is the presence of subspecialist care and ICUs, critical care units, and things like that. So in, in a place like Ecuador, and with, this is a, a long story, but I'll be brief. Part of the learning process for me early on was, was, was going to Ecuador and thinking as a primary care physician, the keys to the kingdom of good health was, was primary health care, was the first level stuff. And that's what my training was in to a certain extent. But getting to Ecuador and doing that kind of work and then seeing, oh, seeing a young man come in with a nine-year-old boy come in with a snake bite and getting bitten. He was walking down to the river and he got bitten in the small of his back by a very venomous snake. His mother brought him into our place in 24 hours, and within two hours, and he said to me, Doc, I'm going to die. And it really caught me off guard and I thought to myself, I needed to regroup and okay, you're not going to die. We're going to, this is before we had antivenin. and I had to ship him up to the capital. We got him on a, in a car and shipped him up to the capital, and lo and behold, two hours later on the way up there, he died. And so those kind of events happened over and over again. And every time those happened, I would say to myself, well, we need to put them in a, we just needed to send them to the local hospital. But there weren't any local hospitals. So that second level hospital piece in a place like Ecuador was the real significant missing link. A lot of first level on the countryside and all over the place. A lot of, not a lot, but enough of tertiary care in the large urban centers. But every place in between, there were big gaps. And so there were very sick patients sometimes staying in the primary level that had no business being there. And then there were patients up in the tertiary care level that probably didn't need that degree of sophistication. And it all happens because the rural hospital operationally really doesn't exist all that well. And there are lots of explanations that we won't have time to go into right now. But our niche, what we discovered, was that we need to really create the rural hospital in Ecuador. And with this, I'll close. But the trek became, how do you, what, what are the rural hospital options out there and how do you, what, what, what would we best want to be? And so it's, you've either got the Ministry of Health Hospital, with that, which has all of its shortcomings, which it calls itself a hospital, but practically and operationally it doesn't function as one. The missionary hospital, which fails on the development perspective because it's, it's frequently dependent on outside and funding and resources. When that dries up, people go home you leave a population at even greater risk than before. So that flunks the development test. And then the private clinic model. And those places are okay. They've got some bells and whistles. They might have some docs that know some things. But you got to have cash to get into those, place, those places. So how do you hybridize all three of those to create something that's self-sustainable, that's accessible to everybody, and that is really high-quality care, high care? That was the trick. That was the, that was the challenge. So having made the commitment to be in this place, you're, you're able to differentiate the social landscape and, and see the particular need in, in non-urban settings that maybe an outside institution or someone at 30,000 feet can't distinguish. Um, and then you, you decide that, in fact, 
trying to trying to address this constellation of needs is both is both an urgent immediate need as well as a need that continues into the future. This is not a, a, a temporary or an episodic gap. This is something structural that's going to have to be addressed for a substantially longer period of time. That's absolutely right. And so a lot of our work was spent on addressing some of those, some of those structural issues. And, and, and again, the, the difference between urban and rural, for example, is vast. It's vast. Um, in America, we tend, United States, we tend to think of rural as anything that's not urban, or we think of it in terms of a congestion perspective. If there's a lot of people, it's urban. If there are not many people, it's rural. We choose to take more of an anthropological approach to it and, and think about uh, the worldview that people have that live in those communities, uh, which is one of the things that we needed to change with time, which was we needed, we were bringing doctors into from the capital out to the countryside to work. And you might say, well, they're all Ecuadorians, don't they all understand each other? But physicians from the capital, they're Western, uh, they're lighter skinned, they're wealthier, they're modern, they're modern. Uh, people from the countryside have a completely different cosmovision. They're, regardless of whether or not they're poor, they're, um, they're arguably anthropologically pre-modern, and so they're their view of health is vastly different than that of a Western-trained physician. And so the only way we were able to overcome that was to decide to form our own training program. So we needed to take people, physicians from the countryside, and train them in a three-year residency program um, so that we could give them the tools to be good doctors, but at least they came already with the understanding of what are my fellow countrymen like, because I get them. They're like me. I'm, I'm from this area. so. Really, though, the, the urban issue was, the urban versus rural issue might seem like not that big of a deal, but it's, a, it's actually a really significant issue. Can you speak more to the issue of uh, physician training? Um, one of the things that was interesting to me as I learned about your, your work is that relatively few physicians in a country like Ecuador have opportunities for the types of specialized residency programs that are, are second nature in advanced industrial countries. But you've taken that on as part of your, of, your, of your work, is to provide this kind of specialized training for physicians that might not otherwise be able to access it and who might otherwise be overmatched with some of the problems that they encounter. That's right. Um, in fact, five, six years ago, the numbers that, that get thrown around Ecuador, 20,000 physicians, 4,000 of them have residency training. That means 16,000 or 80% of the physicians had no postgraduate training. And in a country like the United States, we like to say when you graduate from medical school, you know how to write a good exam, but you don't know how to take care of patients. And so um, recently, fortunately, Ecuador has committed to more uh, residency programs, and so they're training more physicians. But we made this decision before that happened and, and realized that um, training physicians um, was, was a critical piece of what we wanted to do because uh, to be an impactful organization, we wanted to get beyond, I don't want to say just, but I'll say it anyways, just the healthcare delivery. We wanted to train the future leaders of Ecuador in the health sector. And the only way to do that is to have them with you. And one of the things, there are many ways in which we feel our, our training program is unique. There are many ways in which it's very typical, but some of the ways that it's unique is in its ability to um, to help physicians understand 
the challenges of a, of a broken healthcare system. When you're in an urban and you're in an urban setting, you can oftentimes overcome uh, the shortfalls of the healthcare system because most of the resources tend to get focused in the urban settings. But the healthcare systems, like many of the things in rural Latin America, fall apart as soon as you get outside of the countryside. They have some redeeming qualities, and those things are wonderful. But there are many challenges uh, to healthcare delivery in a in a in a uh, in a province in our second hospital, Michael. There are seven hundred thousand people. There's one psychiatrist for seven hundred thousand people, and there are three psychologists. No one has any idea on on the the burden of mental health on, on the community. So one of the things we have to do is train our physicians in a lot of uh, a lot of mental health diagnoses so that they can manage those those things for patients. Trauma is a major issue. Um, uh, organophosphate toxicity, the chemicals we use to spray uh, agricultural products, no one knows how to manage that in the city because no one gets that problem in the city. Um, but probably the most important thing we do, not in a, not in a, in a medical perspective, um, and this kind of goes back to um, some of the things we'll be talking about uh, later tonight, is to be utterly critical of your healthcare system. The only way that our people in Ecuador will ever be able to transform their healthcare system is to be critical of it. And so every morning we talk about, uh, we talk exactly about what, what the patient problems are, but if patients need to be transferred to another facility or if they came from another facility, uh, and they've got problems that are based on that experience, we spend a lot of time talking about systemically what went wrong for that patient. So if you'll allow me, I can take a minute and tell you a good example that illustrates this. Um, we had a 43-year-old woman come into the hospital, brought in by her, by a friend who uh, lived on the farm next to her and said that she's been bleeding on and off um, from down below for about four months now. She had gone to a Ministry of Health facility. They did a pap smear on her, looking for cervical cancer. They, she went to have it done. They told her she could come back in a month and have the pap smear done. She came back in a month and had the pap smear done. A month later, she got the result back. A month later, she was told that she needed to have something called a colposcopy. And three more months went by, and she wasn't able to have it. Meanwhile, she was hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging. By the time she came into our facility, she had about a third of her normal blood volume and she was in shock. And she had, without going into the details, she had a physical exam down below that was utterly unidentifiable. Anatomically, the cancer was so advanced. So the system failed her. So not only do we have, not only do we spend a lot of time talking to our residents about how to address the health problem that she had in terms of the medical problem, but where the system failed her and what, how it needs to be fixed. And we talk about, for a long period of time, how to fix that. If you were Minister of Health, if you were Provincial Health Director, how would you fix that problem? It's a big part of what we do. Absolutely. Um, the, kind of, the kind of end state that you describe for your projects is you hope that they are sustainable using local people, local resources, and so on. How is that cobbled together? How do, you, how do the pieces come together in a, in, in a health system that's admittedly fragmented in some, some respects, lack of coordination. Um, how do you, you know, how, how, have, how have you managed to, to build in some, some robust notions of sustainability in the hospitals that you've been able to get up and, up and running so far? 
So there are many aspects to, to self-sustainability. One of them, one of the principal ones, is financial self-sustainability. So we experimented early on with many financing mechanisms. We did a feasibility study in our first hospital experience in the town of Pedro Vicente Maldonado. And uh, in that community, they told us, look, we'll pay for healthcare services, but you gotta make them cheap and you have to create mechanisms that can put them within our reach. And so we spent years, Michael, trying to figure out different, experimenting with different finance mechanisms. I feel like we could write books of several <laughs> volumes on how not to do it, by the way, because we tried many things and most of them didn't work. But some of them ultimately did work. And our, our, what, our principal belief is that um, you can, people can, there's a, there's a certain percentage of the population that can pay out of pocket for healthcare services. Uh, it's a small percentage, it's probably 20, maybe 30%. The rest of the population is indigent. And so you have to figure out ways to, 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 to provide them healthcare services. Um, and so one of them is, one of the things that we discovered over the years is that we have to partner with the public sector in some way, shape or form. The social security system was that first example in that first hospital. So roughly 80 to 90% of our revenue comes from providing healthcare services to social security patients. How social security differs in Ecuador from the United States is not worth getting into, but it's um, but it, that, that's one important mechanism. In our second hospital, it's been with a, a relationship with the Ministry of Health. So we so people will pay for healthcare services. We're not about giving out free services. We do indigent care. In order for us to be able to do indigent care, we have to have paying patients. We have to have some kind of margin or surplus that we can use to cross-subsidize. So that's really the trick without going into a lot of detail. And then the, 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 the HR sustainability is we have to just, we spend a lot of time, uh, again, training our physicians, but also training local people. We have uh, women that graduated from our local high school that started at the front desk. Um, now they're managers of the hospital. So it's people that we've taken from our small town and brought them up through the ranks. So there's, there's many aspects of self-sustainability. Um, and and it's, a, it's not a perfect system, but in a broken healthcare system, there's some, there's some degree of, of stability there. But our, our basic belief is that, uh, if, is that hospitals function the way communities live. And it would be wrong for us to be, quote unquote, rolling in dough in a community where people are living on $2 a day. So we'll always be in a state of financial urgency, but we always hope to remain afloat. Your lecture at DePaul University is titled, From Liberation Theology to Healthcare, Lessons Learned in Rural Ecuador. What do you mean by, or how do you understand the idea of liberation theology? And how's that informed your own sense of your work over the years? So first of all, just to clarify, I, I, am, I am not an academic liberation theologian. And so I'm, uh, this, this is an area that I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in, but I, I can tell you that uh, from my early years, late high school and into college, um, I, I very much followed the liberation theology uh, movement in Latin America, uh, did a fair amount of reading on the topic, had some classes in it. And so I... What, what I, for me, the best way to characterize what I perceived to be the liberation theology movement in Latin America is large populations of people basically being unable to be, uh, unable to be served by, uh, by priests in large communities, be them in, in Brazil or other places in the world. And so it, it pushed people 
to take the Bible and take the gospel in their own hands and say, what does this mean to me? How do we make this fit for us? How do we make this work for us? And uh, to that extent, um, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it, and so it was a, it was a local contextualization of, of the Bible uh, for people. And obviously there has to be some degree of supervision of that, and we don't need to get into that part of the discussion right now. Uh, but the other piece is that what, what liberation, what, what people discovered in these Christian-based communities uh, in, in reading the Bible and, and, and thinking the things that they were thinking about is that the way that the European church might have taught Europeans and thought, taught theology to, to Europeans is probably a different approach than what the Latin Americans needed from their church and for themselves. And, 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 and came rapidly to the conclusion that there were social relationships out there that were not working for them and they became critical of that. And so without going into the details of that, for me, the two pieces that come out of liberation theology that informed what I was doing in Ecuador was contextualization. So taking the biomedical model and trying to superimpose that model from the United States on Ecuador would have been a profound mistake, a grave mistake. And at the same, but at the same time, being critical of everything that we saw in Ecuador was the only way you were going to ever try and transform a healthcare system. And so contextualization and, and critical thinking of, of what we were seeing, for me, were two of the fundamental concepts of liberation theology that, that really seemed to apply to what we were doing in the health sector. You've been doing this now for how long? 21 years. 21 years. Uh, as you look back, what are some of the lessons that you learned that have stayed with you? Um, have you had important teachers. I can imagine lessons coming from non-traditional places and sometimes surprising circumstances. Um, how, how, how has your understanding of things changed in, in some of the more significant ways? So the, there are teachers all over the place, Michael. Um, some of them are from the States, but I will proudly recognize that most of them are Ecuadorians. Um, the face of our organization in Ecuador is a gentleman who I've known for many years. Uh, uh, I've learned much from him. I've learned much from my residents that we've trained over the years. Um, I've learned the importance, I mentioned the concept of context and contextualization as being critical. I would, I would also say that finding cultural intermediaries, if I were to try and go to a place like Ecuador and figure things out in my own, in my own vacuum, it's, it's a virtual impossibility. So someone needs, I, I needed very early on to recognize that to interpret cultural phenomenon, I needed people locally to be able to do that for me. I also learned that as a, I spent a lot of time training to become a physician and trying to become a good physician for Ecuador. Over the years, I've learned about 10% of what I do is technical and medical. The other rest of it's political, it's, it's administrative, it's legal, um, and it's, uh, it's financial. And so that's really what my, my day doesn't look too medical anymore. I still train residents, um, but most of what I do is, 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 is outside of the technical medical realm. And then finally, I would just say that probably the most important thing I've, I've, I've learned over the years is that I'm a bridge more than just about anything else. And so I see myself as a way to try and connect resources from a place like the United States and the donations that come in, the resources that we have, with some incredibly talented people in Ecuador 
who otherwise might not have had that opportunity. And, and we're a small organization. We don't pretend to have political power, but just as, um, as, as, a, as a graduate of the University of Notre Dame, Ted Hesburgh, as president of the university, um, he was the president of the Civil Rights Commission for many years. He wrote the, the legislation on, on migration law for the United States. He served presidents and popes. And I think uh, Father Ted used his position as a university president in an apolitical, a politically powerless position to try and influence politics in a certain way at another level. That would be my hope too, is that through our, 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 our um, scientific publications, our medical manuals, our, our, our website things, that we can somehow influence policy at, at a grander level, even though we are essentially politically powerless as a small organization. For people that are interested in knowing more about your work, how do they find you? Are there ways that they can come alongside your work without getting in the, in the, in the way? I mean, what, how, do, how do people participate even if at one remove from the work that you're doing? So we have medical students that come down. We have some undergraduate students that come up, spend some time with us. What we try and avoid is a discussion about coming to help. Um, and I, and, I, I, and I, I understand where the hearts are of Americans. I get that. I, I've evolved myself over the years, but I oftentimes tell people it's, it would be like an Ecuadorian calling up the president of, Gen of Massachusetts General Hospital and saying, hey, I've got a month free in July. Can I come up and help? They're going to get kind of a quiet response on the other end. Same thing. for There's a lot of complexity in what we do. So people don't necessarily need to come to help. They can come to learn, and we have opportunities for them for that. Outside of that, there are specific areas. We're, we're a research organization as well. We're always looking for good research, idea, research ideas, uh, and that can be everything from medical to anthropological to sociological to theological. Um, and so we're, we're looking for people like that all the time. Um, but, uh, but our organization, it, it's called andianhealth.org. Um, our headquarters are in, in Madison, Wisconsin. Laura Dries is our director of U.S. Um, of US operations. Um, so it's, we're, we're easily findable on the website. Okay, very good. Dr. David Gauss, thank you so much. Michael, thank you. Near and Far is produced by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology a research institute focused on Catholicism around the world with special attention to the church in the so-called Global South. The center is sponsored by DePaul University, a Catholic university in the Vincentian tradition in Chicago. Production assistance for Near and Far comes from Greg Barker, Anna Gallen, Francis Salino, and Karen Kraft. For more information on the center and its activities, look for the Center for World Catholicism on the web, Facebook, or Twitter.